0: Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you, and a very warm welcome to those of you who are visiting uh, with us, and uh, great to be able to share God's Word uh, with you. We've been singing about some really glorious truths about the Lord Jesus, who He is, what He's come to do, and we're going to continue to think about that and God's plans and purposes um, in His work of salvation in this world. We've been going through Romans 9 to 11, and Romans 9 to 11 together has thrown up some very difficult issues for us. It's sort of forced us to rethink how God-centered we are by asking us questions of how much we understand about God's sovereignty and greatness, but also how much we understand of his kindness and his grace. To shift from a kind of human-centered thinking to a God-centered thinking, which is what God, uh, God's word has been getting us to do in chapters 9 to 11, has been one of the effects of it, And I hope this this has been part of the process for you. As we've grappled with difficult truths in these chapters, it's forced you to rethink the orientation of your life, to ask the question, who is at the center? Who is not just life really about, but who is your life about? Whose purpose are you serving? Whose will are you seeking to accomplish? Whose plans are you seeking to see achieved in in the world? And one of the key hallmarks, one of the the fundamental fruits of being God-centered is being humble. It's the opposite of arrogance, the opposite of pride. As we recognize that we're not at the center, but God is at the center. It's not about us, it's about him. One of the key fruits that that should produce is humility. And I think this is really what is at the focus of this passage. It's a reflection on God's character, on his kindness and his sternness, on his greatness and his grace. On his holiness and his mercy. But the implication of that should be humility for us. As we reflect on the kindness and sternness of God, we should respond in humility. And I think this is the main thing. In verses um, 11 to 16, the first thing we see is the first reason why we should be humble. And that is because we simply don't know what God will do. Be humble because you do not know what God will do. Uh, Verses 11 to 16. If you have Romans 11, open uh, open it there and we'll have a look at it together. My wife and I have recently started uh, watching uh, Jeremy Clarkson's attempted farming. I, I don't know if any of you have seen this. I know some of you have. If you can put up with uh, his crude language, um, then you'll, you'll find it a most entertaining effort at farming. It's really helped me to appreciate that farming is a lot more complicated and a lot more intricate than, uh, than uh, well I did understand that, but seeing it you realize this is not for everyone. Um, but the other thing that's made me realize is just how much we react to the things that happen around us. He buys a tractor, he discovers the tractor's too big. Uh, he, he also discovers that his tractor doesn't have the right part to pull all the other parts that he needs, so he has to buy a new bit to go on the back of his tractor to pull those bits. Then it starts raining, and he can't do any of the things he had planned to do, so he has to do something else. And then he discovers X, and something else happens, and he has to respond to that, and something else happens, and he has to respond to it, and basically he's running at a huge loss. So I'm interested to see where the series goes. Uh, But the danger is we can start to think of God as being a bit like a Jeremy Clarkson on a farm. He's always just responding to things that we do and things that are happening. That's the danger. The danger is that we basically, God in our minds, is is, is just a much bigger, grander version of a farmer who's having to respond and react to the things that are happening to them. But in fact, God is not like that. And it may seem that as we read through sort of the Bible and the history of God's people, we may, it may seem as if what's happening is, well, God has thrown open the doors of salvation to all the nations, to every tribe and tongue, because he saw that, to his disappointment, Israel have rejected the gospel, rejected their own Messiah. And so it seems like a plan A has failed, plan B is in effect sort of thing. Oh, now that the, 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 the Jews have rejected the gospel, let's just, let's just give it to everyone. And there's some truth to that. But in fact, as you go back and you read the Old Testament, you see actually as far as early as Genesis chapter 3, the plan has been not simply to reach the Jews with the gospel, but to reach the Gentiles with the gospel. That's been there from the beginning. And that in fact, the choosing of the Jews for a particular purpose was in part and mainly to use them as a means to reach all the nations. And so this kind of God is just simply reacting and responding to whatever is going on and that is constantly reverting to plan A, to plan B, to plan C, is not the idea of God that we find in scripture and especially not in these chapters. God's plan is not reaction but he's acting constantly to seek to implement his plans and purposes. So the the key thing is that in the same way, Paul says, to to understand the world and what is happening in history this way leads to a key conclusion in our thinking about Jewish believers. And just by the way, you might be thinking, what do we care about the whole Jew-Gentile thing anyway? There are much bigger problems, bigger divisions in the world today. Why are we worried about this? But you have to understand that this was the biggest surprise of the ages for centuries god worked exclusively with the jewish people and to become part of god's family you had to become jewish and now the doors have been thrown open to the gentiles and it took the jews by surprise it took the nations by surprise it took everyone by surprise this was a huge thing and it was such a controversial thing that basically the first centuries of the church were spent trying to work out what this meant in practice the first council of the church in acts 15 was for this issue explicitly What are we going to do with Jews and Gentiles in the same group? It's a huge issue. But Paul's saying if we understand history rightly, we'll see that God is not done yet. And we need to be careful to draw conclusions too soon that God is finished. That God is finished with his plans in the world. We just don't know. But Paul says... What if, what if Gentile salvation, that's the salvation of all non-Jews, leads to Jewish conversions? Look at verse 11 of chapter 11. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? In other words, did the Jews, their rejection of the Messiah mean that there's no hope for them ever again? Not at all, says Paul. Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. So, God has, through the rejection of Israel, taken the gospel to everybody else. And he's saying, because of that, because of that, it's going to make Israel, that is Jewish people, envious of what they could have had, but now all the nations have. And so perhaps there's just a a lingering hope there, that God will one day work again in the hearts and minds of Jewish people to draw them back on mass in the same way that they rejected their Messiah on mass. God's not finished yet, and we just don't know what He will do. And so you have this in, in verses 13 and 14 as well. I'm talking to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. He's under no delusions that all of, of the Jewish people, by virtue of the fact that they are Jewish, are simply going to come back magically, past, present, and future. But he is saying, I know that there are some out there. They are God's true people. And my hope is that through my preaching the gospel to non-Jews, that the Jews would then in turn look at what, what a glorious gospel has been given to the nations, and that they would be aroused by envy and jealousy and would want that, They'd realize that that is their own Messiah who's blessing the nations, and that they would be aroused to envy and jealousy and be saved, turn and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. In some sense, Paul's just developing the idea that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that remains true, even going to the future. It doesn't matter who's rejected him now. If they call on him later, they will be saved. And that's Paul's hope for his own kinsmen, for his his fellow Jews. And this, says Paul, would be extremely good news for all of us. So look uh, look at verse 12. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion be? Or verse 15. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Isn't it interesting that Paul is hoping that not only will the gospel going to the nations arouse the jealousy of the jews and hopefully just be the means by which god saves some of them he he can't say for certain he's not god he doesn't know what god will do he's humble enough to acknowledge that it's only a hope and yet he can see god at work somehow but isn't it interesting that he's not seeing that as the end either so it's not only that Oh, the Jews reject so it goes to the Gentiles so that the Jews will come back in. He ends by saying and then that will mean more blessing for everyone. So he sees God's plan at work. All the way back from the beginning, since Genesis chapter 3, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, on through the entire story of the Old Testament into the coming of Christ and the New Testament as the means by which God will reverse the effects of the call, break the curse, and bring blessing to every tribe and tongue again. And this is why the picture of those in God's kingdom forever, in the new heavens and the new earth, in Revelation, is made up of, of people from every tribe and tongue. God is at work to bring blessing through Jesus Christ. And he doesn't know how that will pan out. And so he says, be humble. He's speaking particularly to the Gentiles here, to the non-Jewish Christians. In verse 13, I'm talking to you Gentiles. That's pretty clear, isn't it? If you ever wanted to know who somebody's talking to, it really helps if they just spell it out like that. For most of the letter, he's actually been talking to Jewish Christians and pushing back against them. I don't think that you're more important than anyone else. Christ has made us all one in him. But now he's pushing to the Gentiles, don't get too arrogant to think that you think this is just the end of Jewish participation in God's plans and purposes, no, you don't know what God is at work to do in this world. Now this has two very, very important implications for us. If you follow with me thus far, well done. Here, Here are two important applications of this for us. The first is this, how do we relate to Jewish people? Well, the one way we could relate to them is to say, oh, you know, you guys, what's wrong with you? Why did you reject your own Messiah? Look at us, you should have done what we did. And Paul's going to point out that this is wrong-headed in a number of levels. We can't just dismiss the Jewish people as if God's done with them. Like he's, he's busy working with the, the Romanians and the Brits and the Americans and the Africans. And he's working with all of them, but he's not working with the, with the Jewish people anymore. That would be a wrong way of thinking about it. So we need to make sure that our hopefulness about God saving people from among the Jews is as it should be. He has his people there, he will save his elect, his remnant, and he will do that through bringing Gentiles and, and the nations in. But the other thing is, and it's sort of a, derived from this, is that all of us, all of us I think know people who at one point did receive the gospel and now have turned away from it and rejected it in one way or another. All of us know people like that. All of us know people who perhaps we think they've, they've completely dismissed this. Maybe they've never been Christians, but they're hardened atheists. They're just not interested in it. Or maybe they're fervent participants of another religious system out there, and they just don't want anything to do with the gospel. I know that I have a tendency, I meet people like this, and I have a tendency to think, well, there's not, not much chance for them. There's not much chance for them. But we know, and Paul is saying, I know there's some weird sound effect going on in the background, (laughs) but I was here, people, I was here. Okay, so um, uh, we know that actually that's not how it works. And even the most hardened atheists convert like that. That the Spirit of God and the Word of God is powerful enough to work in them. And I think we need to learn from this not to make the same mistake with other people who we see as a lost cause, as someone who's rejected the gospel and turned that away and turned away from it, and we think there's no hope for them anymore. And this is a warning to us just to be humble, you don't know what God will do. You just don't know. The second warning about being humble is. Coming from, again, understanding God's greatness, but also understanding God's grace. Understanding God's grace. And you see this mainly in verses 17 to 20. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in, granted. But they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. And what he's saying is, and he's using the analogy of an olive tree, and you have a kind of homegrown olive tree and you've got wild olive trees and the Jews, Jewish uh, believers of or Jewish members of the covenant represent the branches from the olive tree and some of them have been broken off because they've rejected the gospel. And then some wild olive trees growing up there, some of the branches were cut off from them and grafted in to this olive tree, God's olive tree. And he's using that to say that yes, even though they're wild, and they, in a sense, don't belong here, then, actually, God has done this by grace. And even though these branches do belong here, the natural branches, because they no longer believed, because they rejected it, they've been cut off and replaced. And he's saying, if God has done this, done this all by his grace, through the preaching of the gospel, if this is what God has done, then understand that it has always, always been by grace. I don't know if you've ever had this uh, experience. Where, And let's just, say, let's just say, for instance, somebody calls you up, a friend of yours calls you up, desperately in need of help. Can you please, can you come and help me with something? And um, let's, say, let's say, for instance, use a real life example, I did this with Kevin and I needed to put up some bookshelves and I'm not very good at DIY stuff so I called Kevin, Kevin please, come and help me, I need your help desperately. Kevin comes over very graciously, spends the whole afternoon putting together bookshelves, I'm not really contributing to this, uh, let's say, in this, uh, for the purpose of this illustration and I'm just watching him do it and, you know, uh, just... Give, keeping him company, giving him moral support, but, you know, just watching him do it. And, and he does it, he's, oh, blood, sweat, and tears for the whole afternoon. He puts together all the, all the bookshelves, and then at the end of it, when he's done and he's exhausted and he's finished the job and he's more or less done it all by himself, when all this has happened, I turn around to, to him and say, hey, glad I could help Kev. Anytime you need a hand, you just give me a call. It'd be bizarre, wouldn't it? absolutely bizarre. And yet every time, every time we as Christians act in arrogance, act in pride, as if there was something about us that made us better than anyone else, we do exactly the same thing. We do exactly the same thing. If there was anything, anything that we contributed to this. If we had any reason to boast but we don't we have no reason to boast it is all by grace it is the root that supports you says Paul not you that supports the root you're only in this because God has cut you off from a wild olive tree that has no business being part of this tree and put you in and he's done that by his grace it's his work but when Christians become arrogant And we start to boast as if we're better than the non-Christian, or better than each other, then we're like the person saying, oh, glad I could help God, anytime you need me, just give me a call. It doesn't work like that. The one thing a Christian should never be is arrogant. I didn't say the one thing a Christian could never be is arrogant, because we all know that we can be arrogant. But the one thing a Christian should never be is arrogant. Be humble, it is all by grace. We depend on the root, that is Christ. The root does not depend on us. And finally, be humble because God is both kind and stern. Be humble, because God is both kind and stern. Look at verses 21 to 24. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you will continue in his kindness. Otherwise you will also be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut off from an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? In other words, what he's saying is this that in verse 22, there are two characteristics of God that we need to know. Two characteristics of God that we need to know. The one is that God is infinitely kind, He's kind. But the other is that he is stern or severe. How does that work together? How can you be kind and severe or stern at the same time? And the answer to that is to those who have come to, to turn to him in faith, in the gospel, his kindness has no limit. His kindness has no limit. That is, if you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and have therefore been grafted in, because you know that his saving work is for you, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead is for you, has been the means by which you have been forgiven, washed clean, brought into his family, adopted into the family, made given citizenship in the kingdom. If all of this you know has happened to you because of the Lord Jesus Christ and simply through your faith in him, not through anything that you've done, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, if that is you... Then God's kindness to you will never fail. Actually, it doesn't matter how often you sin. If you keep returning in faith and repentance, his kindness to you will never fail. It doesn't matter how badly you sin. His kindness to you will never fail. It doesn't matter how fed up you get or how weak your faith is, or how much doubt you are racked with, or how how often you fail with your Bible reading plans. God's kindness to you will never fail. It's infinite. But to those who've rejected the gospel, who've rejected faith in Christ, who've rejected the Messiah, who've turned away from him and turned their back on God, there is sternness. There is severity. But, says Paul, in verse 23, if they do not persist in unbelief, They will be grafted in again for god is able to graft them in again in other words even the people who reject god and turn their back on him if they come back again his kindness to them will be infinite you see this is how the grace and the and the the sovereignty and the the holiness of god work together you see this chiefly in the cross of christ the lord jesus christ when he died for us on the cross You see God's sternness and his kindness being manifest in the most clear of ways. Sternness because God is condemning in Christ all of the sinful behavior of the world. But kindness because through that act of sacrifice, Christ is saving his sinful people. And so you see both the grace and the holiness of God, the kindness and the severity of God. You see it being poured down to us in the cross And so as long as we stick to the cross, and this is as we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper, this is precisely what this is about. It's us renewing the fact that we together as his people are sticking to the cross. We're not leaving it. We're staying there. Because as long as we stay there trusting in Jesus, trusting in his death for us, God's kindness to us is infinite. But the moment we leave... We have no assurance of that kindness. But if we come back again, his kindness to us is infinite. And this is the wonder, says Paul, of God and his grace and his mercy. And that is why Paul has not given up hope for his fellow Jews. He is hoping that they will come back and receive infinite mercy and grace from God. And this is, I think, what we need to take hold of for ourselves. That doesn't matter how often we sin or how badly we sin. If we come back, if we repent and believe the good news that Jesus is Lord and Christ and Savior for us, that he died for us, God's kindness to us is infinite. But we also need to hold on to that. That no matter how hard-hearted our friends and family and colleagues and, and neighbors may seem, if they come to God, which will be by his grace, God's kindness to them will be infinite. Consider then the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Let's pray. Our loving Father, we thank you so much for the cross of Christ and for all it means for us. Thank you that for those of us who are in you, who have come in faith to the Lord Jesus, have turned from our sins and put our confidence in him to save us that there is infinite kindness for us that can never be worn out faded away but father we pray that we would heed the warning from Israel's past and not to presume on that kindness if we reject you but father we pray for all those that we do know who have rejected you that you would bring them back again so that they may receive kindness and grace in Jesus' name. Amen.